Hello everyone and welcome to the Laundromat, the podcast dedicated to compliance professionals. This episode is brought to you by Dotfile, the modern operating system for compliance teams. Dotfile helps you verify your individual or business customers anywhere in the world in less than 10 seconds. Today, we receive Xavier André Justo. He's a former banker and the whistleblower for the 1MDB scandal, or one of the biggest embezzlement cases of all time. His testimony revealed massive kleptocracy by the then Malaysian Prime Minister and sent shockwaves to the international financial industry. After spending a year and a half in a Bangkok prison on false charges, he now unveils his side of the story. Hello, Xavier. Thank you very much for accepting to be a guest. Thank you, Baptiste, and thank you for everybody who is listening today to, to this podcast. Great. Let's get to it. So, first question, before jumping to the scandal, could you please tell us a bit more about your career before? Okay, um, uh, I will say I'm a typical product from the Swiss banking industry. I started my career a long time ago in uh, 1987 at UBS, which was, uh, which is still there, I think the largest, uh, the largest Swiss bank in Geneva. I spent uh, like uh, more than 20 years in the, in the finance industry. At the end of the 90s, um, I created a portfolio management company in Geneva uh, with branches in Luxembourg and Paris. After having done that for 20 years, more than 20 years, in 2009, I sold uh, the shares of my company and I, I left uh, to Asia with my girlfriend, who now is my wife, Laura, And we thought about uh, starting a new life in uh, in Asia. That's the uh, that's for my financial uh, career part. Early 2010, I was contacted by uh, my pretty much very best friend at the time. I I considered him as my little brother, Tarek Obeid. Had a company called Petro Saudi, and uh, this is a very important name because. For the majority of people, when you say Petro Saudi, it looks like it's an official company of the kingdom, like some kind related to the oil business in Saudi Arabia. But that was not the case. It was just uh, a beautiful name that my friend bought a few years ago. So b before going to Asia, I was also a director of this Petro Saudi company, which uh, I said was uh, almost a shell company. I was a director for. They tried to do a few businesses in uh, in South America, but uh, all of them were failures. So I left uh, Switzerland in, I think it was August, early September 2009, and then I moved to Asia. And uh, so in February 2010, five months after my departure, I was contacted by uh, Tariq Obeid, the, the, the boss of Petro Saudi, telling me that he signed a, a contract. He made a deal with uh, with the Malaysian Sovereign Wealth Fund, 1MDB, and that uh, you, they received a lot of money to be invested in the oil business, and he needed me as the, we we'll say, his trusted guy, as, as the number three of the company. Well, what was the, the expertise that they wanted from you uh, for uh, this project? It's going to sound, uh, it's not what I think I am. Yes, of course, I think that I am that, but he needed a trusted guy, some, somebody that will be... Uh, we said that we be incorruptible. That's always strange, but everything will be yeah. a scam. But he needed a guy like me that 
I had the signature, for example, uh, all the payments of the company for more than a million. I was the only one that was to sign them. So uh, I would have uh, emptied uh, the bank's account, no question has. But you need to get a bit. And also, the only, uh, the only activity of PetroSaudi at that time, and pretty much for all the duration of PetroSaudi, was uh, they had, before I joined, they had a, signed a contract with PDVSA. Uh, which is the the national oil company of uh, Venezuela, and of course I'm a, I'm a, I'm a Swiss citizen, but I'm also a Spanish citizen. Right? I speak perfectly Spanish, so it was good for them to have a guy on board that would handle all the the issues that you can have with the company like PDVSA. And what was the the the, the project between these two companies? Where one was sending, I guess, oil to the other country or something? No, like that? no, no. It was. Uh, what you can call oil services, though pretty much in the PetroSaudi case, PDVSA will instruct uh, PetroSaudi. We had one bo- uh, one drill ship, and after I, I joined, we, we bought another one. But Petros- uh, uh, PDVSA will tell you, you go to need to this part of the sea, drill a hole at the bottom where we will indicate you have to do. So you have this drill ship that will drill holes at kilometer under the sea. Uh, you drill a hole and you put a, like a cap and that you, you will move to the next location. It was purely drilling holes at the bottom of the ocean. No okay. exploitation of whatever was coming out of the, of the okay. hole. And the company in Venezuela is legit. They are yeah. properly digging these holes and uh, yeah, providing yeah, services to... It's the state company of uh, of, uh, of Venezuela, PDVSA. What you need to know, the auditors need to know, that for this kind of service, we were paid, PetroSaudi was paid, we had two drill ships. It was, if you add both of them and you divide by two, we were receiving uh, more than $400,000 per day. That's a lot of money. And that yeah. opens the door for a lot of uh, commission or back commission or... Well, corruption. corruption. Yes. So you, you work for this, uh, for this company for how long and... What was the first thing that made you suspicious of bad things? It, it, it's, it's more complicated than that. So I spent pretty much a year in London uh, taking care of mainly the Venezuelan activities. And uh, I went there uh, probably 10 times. I spent weeks and weeks. I signed the new contract uh, for the, the new drill ship. The second one that we bought was a $1.3 billion. I solved many logistical problems because it's a uh, it's a beautiful country. It's, they have the, the largest oil reserve on earth, but all the country was, and it's still continuing, falling apart. That There is almost no more production. At that time, they were producing more than 3 million barrels per day. Now, it's uh, I think it's under uh, half a million. Everything is going, uh, not bankrupt, but uh, they, pretty much all the money that Venezuela could make uh, is uh, it's taking... Uh, Diverted by by the corruption. So uh, during my my year in, I left Petro Saudi after a year because I, uh, uh, my relationship with Mr. Colbert was uh, what uh, the lowest point ever. People said that when you become rich, you can become crazy. And I saw that my friend who always was different, but by at one stage he had more than hundred million in his bank account, so. He could, uh, with this money, fulfill all fantasies and vices. And that was something I didn't want to 
be part of it. How did it change, change him, all this money and access to vices, as you said? It's, uh, I have so many examples, but uh, I don't want to discuss the auditors, but it was pretty much um, a non-stop partying with all, you can imagine, I don't want to go into details, but the, the, the offices from time to time became more like a nightclub than uh, than an office, it was like buying the most expensive bottles of wine in London and make fun of it. it was treating very badly the, the others and uh, it is not who, who I was and it's not who I am. So I, yeah, the disgust started to to build up and one day I said, I can't say that anymore, I'm leaving. So I left. And the important thing that during my time in Petrosody, I never really saw something illegal. Of course, I had suspicions. Uh, for example, Mr. Obeid immediately bought a, a flat in London for eight million pounds. Mr. Patrick Mahoney, the number two of the company, he bought a house in Notting Hill for a little bit more than six million pounds. A beautiful chalet in the Swiss Alps for almost ten millions. Uh, all the all the all the travels that we were making were only in, in jets, private jets. So I looked, I saw a lot of money of when you're going around, but I never saw something that could say, ah, this is illegal. Even in Venezuela, when you speak, I spoke with ministers, uh, we did deals, but I never saw anything. Mr. Maoni was taking care of all the, these details, if I can say. Nobody saw neither me, neither the, 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 the legal department in Petrosov in London, neither the accountant. We didn't see any, any illegal stuff because, of course, it was hidden. So I left the company in April 2011, and in June 2011, so two months after that, I was in London with uh, with Laura, and uh, I asked the the IT guy of Petro Saudi, who was my friend, uh, I was the one that gave him the the contract with Petro Saudi in London because he was taking care prior to that of my uh, company in Geneva. So. After two months, I called the guy and asked him if I could get a copy of the data of Petro Saudi. Not, not because I, I, I'm very open and frank with that, not because I saw anything illegal, but there was so much money flowing around that I told him if, if one day there is a problem, there is something that maybe will be found illegal, I just want to prove that I had nothing to do with that, either that I didn't take any money of that. That was the initial goal of me asking the, the data of Petro Saudi. With all of this money, of course, you expect some kind of corruption to happen and you wanted to be able to prove that you had nothing to do uh, with uh, any of it. Yeah, so again, it's important. I never, I really never saw the, the, the one thing that could say, ah, this is an illegal act. I have to go to the police immediately. You have suspicions, but because when you, you know people for 20 years, like Patrick Mahoney or Tarek Obeid, and he, in five months since my departure from Geneva back to Asia and back to London, they, they became rich. Uh, you have suspicions, but again, if you don't see the proof, you, you can't say it's illegal. So yeah, and you expect people to make a, a lot of money in this industry, so it's also not not so surprising in a way. No, no. I mean, it, it, we don't need we don't need to be naive or, or childish. Uh, like in all the countries, the oil industry, and probably particularly when you deal with poor countries, there are a lot of commission, but. You can you can live probably with a five percent commission, even if it's corruption. But sometimes you, people think they need corruption to make the machine uh, work. 
But in the case of Petrosal, just to give you the exact figure, the Malaysian sovereign wealth fund, one MDB, they sent $1.8 billion for the joint venture with Petrosaudi. Out of the $1.8 billion, Petrosaudi and the Malaysian side, because uh, there, were, uh, there were a lot of people involved, they took $1.5 billion in commissions, that, meaning that more than 80% of the deal were, were purely commissions. Yeah, it, it seems, seems a bit much. Yeah. <laughs> so you got this, uh, this data from your, yes. from your friend. I suppose you analyzed them. Did you work on them? So it's probably we have some IT guys uh, li listening to the podcast, but for a normal guy, I'm, I'm, I'm from 1966. So I, I was born a little bit earlier than the boom of, uh, of computers. So the data consisted in 227,000 emails and more than 90 gigabytes of data and everything was it's a kind of a, what we call a, a journal, a journal. It goes from the day one to the last day. And you have everything in, in the data. You have, um, I don't know, emails from a guy in Venezuela ordering some spare parts for the, for the drill ship in, uh, let's say in, in Texas. You have a guy from London sending an email to a friend in uh, So it will take more than, I don't know, the average lifetime of a the person is 80 years, probably if you don't know the file and I give you the, these 237,000 emails with attachment, it's more than a million page. It will take uh, many, many years. So it's everything. So what happened that I received those data in June 2011 and September 2011, we, we moved to, to Thailand, to Kosovo. And uh, from, uh, so we had a project there, we're building a, a hotel there. So from that to that, I was going through the data, but you have to realize when you plug the hard drive in your computer and it, let's say you press search to go through the file, it takes a few hours to go through the, probably there are better uh, methods of doing that, but I'm not an IT guy. So sometimes on Saturdays, or if there was a day I had nothing to do, I will plug the data and I will, in the search engine or whatever work, one MDB, PetroSaudi or whatever, Tarek. And, it, and I will go through them. But again, it's if you add the 227, if you multiply 227,000 email, emails by with the attachment, it's a, more than a million pages. If you translate that up in, in books, it's thousands of books. So sometimes I saw something, sometimes, but most of the time I didn't see anything. So at that time, I saw a couple of times bank statements or transfer with like huge amounts of money. But again, I had suspicion, but I couldn't say this is completely illegal. Because if you see a payment from Petro Saudi to another company, maybe the other company is legit. They didn't send the money to, I don't, I don't know, Petro Saudi, uh, the Tarek Sobeid account in Nassau. It's not as simple as that. And you, and you know better than me. They will never use personal accounts for their, for diverting the money. Yeah, no, for, for sure. And by the way, just circling back a little bit, because maybe not everyone is familiar with this uh, 1MDB scandal. Could you yes, make yes, for us have... like small summary, executive okay, summary? Yes. Yeah, okay, yeah, that, you're correct. It's probably not everybody's as involved in, the, in that case as I am. So the origin of the money for Petro Saudi was a joint venture that Petro Saudi signed with the Malaysian Sovereign Wealth Fund 
one MVP. Yeah. The, 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 the official goal of the joint venture was for Malaysia to send money to Petrosadi to be invested in any kind of oil-related uh, business. In okay. a joint venture, both parties have to bring something. One MDB will bring the cash, and Petrosadi, as they didn't have cash, they brought assets. But, uh, again, I was there uh, uh, like four months prior to the, the, the joint venture, so as a matter of fact, I can guarantee that Petro Saudi had no assets. So the solution for them, quite uh, not a, a smart one, but uh, the only one that they could, uh, they, they, they could find was for bringing assets, they did something that people in the oil business may know, it's called a farming agreement. So you, they brought oil fields in Turkmenistan that didn't belong to them. They, they signed a farming agreement. To summarize, to make it short, is a kind of a lease of the oil fields. Yeah. But there it's not your oil fields, they are not your property. So they should not never be accepted as asset. It's like if you're like renting your apartment and uh, you want to make a deal, uh, the other party needs some cash or some warranty for guarantees from your side, and you say, oh, okay, I bring the my slot as a guarantee. It's not yours. You're just uh, renting the slot. But nobody checked. It was so I mean it was so easy to check. So that's that's how it happened. Malaysia at the money, Petro Saudi at the a beautiful name. Petro Saudi still today. If you, if you tell a guy you know Petro Saudi, if the, if he doesn't know it, he will say, "Ah, oh, it's probably related to the to the country of Saudi Arabia." But it had nothing to do. So that's what happened. They signed a fake joint venture. They used these uh, oil fields in uh, Turkmenistan that they had no possession for that. And that was the, the, the legal way for Malaysia to send the money in the joint venture. From this point, once you know better than me, once the money is in the banking system, it's, it's, it's as clean as it can be. Regarding the compliance on the banks, it would have been so easy. I mean, the two banks, banks involved in this Pentro Saudi deal were JP Morgan and the Kutz. Both of them could and should. It's not because that you receive money, uh, it, it, because it's a joint venture that you don't need to check what's the, the, the status of the, the joint venture. Just with a couple of clicks on Google, they could have seen that these assets, they couldn't be them, be the uh, Petrosani assets. First, because they could have asked, show me the property, that you own the property of those uh, oil fields. And secondly, they could have seen that, it, that these uh, oil fields were in the in an international dispute between uh, Turkmenistan and uh, Azerbaijan, so they couldn't be exploited. It was a couple of Google clicks would have been enough to to see that uh, it was a scam, but they didn't do that. Don't ask me why. Probably because net new money in bank in banks is still something which is uh, which is very good. Yeah, especially for a deal uh, of this size. Well. So and from there, uh, ju just to, to finish the story about the, the scandal, from from what I know, then all these people and the, the most famous one is John Law, is a guy from Malaysia, very close to uh, the center of powers there, and he basically used the money for his own enjoyment, like uh, financing the Wolf of Wall Street, of Wall Street, paying for a lavish lifestyle, like nightclubs and uh, parties and houses and, and, and so on like a, a completely crazy story 
with with one point five billion dollars, you can make a lot of things. So, and a third of that money, half a billion, which is a lot, five hundred million dollars, they went uh, to Terry Cobay, Patrick Mahoney, and the co-founder of Petro Saudi, one of the son of the ex-king of of Saudi Arabia, and the billion remaining went for Jolo, the is Malaysian young guy, and for Najib Razak, the former prime minister of Malaysia. Jolo used that to, of course, to uh, to finance his lavish style life with uh, models, partying, buying uh, properties in Los Angeles and New York. Uh, uh, Najib Razak, the former prime minister, was to, to buy votes for his, for his re-election. Re and uh, again, he, uh, and, and this is something that we can say later on, but uh, the sovereign wealth fund is supposed to be used for the good of the country to develop the infrastructure, to build hospitals, schools, or renew uh, uh, whatever you want. It's not supposed to to go for re-election, partying, prostitutes, and and others. Well, that's for sure. And now that we know what happened, looking at all these events, it, uh, I mean, it's kind of crazy that no one noticed it earlier, and it leads to my following question. When did people started being suspicious, <laughs> and what were the the, the the signs? So what happened in my case? So as I said, I moved my, I moved to to Asia at end of 2011. Got engaged in 2012, married in 2013. So now I was going on normally building a, a hotel in Thailand. So it's quite some adventure. And early in 2014, I was contacted by a journalist, a British journalist, Claire Castle Brow. She called me. I was in Gossam with her. I'm uh, on Claire Castle Brow. I mean, I, I heard your notes. People, I think that you may need, you may help us or help me in the corruption that is going on in Malaysia. I would love to meet you. And I told her, okay, if you want to come to Thailand, I'm, I'm happy to meet you. And that's how. Everything really started in the, I would say, in the whistleblowing and in the international uh, scam. So she, she came to visit me. I show her a few documents that I found randomly, and uh, she found a couple of things. They said, oh, this is, uh, oh, wow, wow, wow. And that's how it started. And uh, to be, again, because I spoke about that a few times, she asked me uh, if I wanted money for that, and I watched. And I told her, Claire, I mean, if I am going to give you that information, I may be facing some problems. Of course, I, I never saw the problems that I had will come at this point at this magnitude. So I, I told her, uh, because just another uh, small thing, uh, Petro Sadi was still owing me some money after my departure. I said, hey, I want uh, the, uh, at least the, the, the money that uh, Petro Sadi owes me. And uh, she said, okay, give me some time so I, I will find a way. A few months later, in February, in February 2015, she called me back and she told me that some uh, that the media tycoon in Malaysia uh, would love to meet me. Up there. He may be interested in getting those documents. I went to 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 meet them in, in Singapore and we spent the day together. And uh, what happened is that they knew it was a scam. They knew because they they were living in Malaysia, so they knew that Jolo was a crew that the 1MDB was used as a corruption machine, but they had no proof. And from my side, I had the proofs, but I didn't have, a, at that time, the knowledge 
of how the scam was done. So between my information and their knowledge, it, it was obvious. So at the end of the day, it was clear that they had enough proofs to, to go on with uh, exposing the scam. And uh, to make it short, he asked me how much money I wanted. And I said, uh, we are now far beyond uh, speaking about getting money and so on. So take the file and do whatever you want with them. And that's it. So I gave them the file, the file, and I went back personally. Okay. And how long did it take uh, between the moment they, they received your information, the investigation, and when they act, when the actually the scandal broke out? Like a couple of weeks, because he, he, there, there were so many documents, so they needed to, to build a strong case to be published. So I don't remember exactly. I think it was less than two weeks, if not maybe two weeks. And uh, that's how your that's when they started publishing the, in the, 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 one of the first article was called the ace of the century. Okay. Oh, wait, that, that was very fast. They just need some kind of, uh, proof yeah, because of what they, they already they, knew. They, and... they knew. So when you knew, you know how to look for the, for the, for the files and they had a, they had a professional IT team for me when I was looking through the files, I'm not, I'm not an IT guy. So it took ages for me, probably for a, for an IT guy, it will take only hours to find all the documents. So they build, they build the case, they publish the case with all the evidences, the bank transfer, for example, the involvement of goods in Zurich, goods back in Zurich, the, that received or not that they received, I think a billion of dollars from a, from a, this uh, sovereign wealth fund that was supposed to go to Petro Saudi, but they didn't check that. The, I mean, again, it's 2010, 11, it's not that far away, it's, it's still the same. Kutz received the first tranche was a payment of 700 million. It was sent to a, to a, to an account number. They didn't put the beneficiary name because for the joint venture, the beneficiary name should have been Petro Saudi 1MDB. But the bank account in Kutz was not for Petro Saudi. It was for Jono. So they started by sending the money without beneficiary name. And of course, Kutz and the corresponding bank, Deutsche Bank said, hey, guys, we need the beneficiary name. So there was a, there was a few discussions between the compliance, the, the paying bank, one MDB, and this is very well related in the if there were DOG report. There is a complaint from DOG. You have the conversation, the phone calls between the compliance guy, the the one MDB guy, the Dutch about, and the guys are saying we need the beneficiary name, and the, at the end they will say it's for Good Star, Good Star Seychelles. It's not truly Petro Saudi. And the, the, the explanation is that because a good start belongs to Petro Saudi. We have the prime minister who is insisting to do the quick, quickly the payment. So it was just good enough with a couple of phone calls. They accepted the money instead of going to the Petro Saudi one MDB joint venture account to go to good star limited Seychelles. I, I've, I've been doing a few conferences with the students in the university of Lausanne and in, uh, in, uh, in Germany. And I always. Tell them if you think that financial crimes, you need very sophisticated tactics. Sometimes good names like Petro Saudi, important personalities that the former prime minister of a country, it's good enough to open all the, all the doors and to convince people that you can't fight them. So better, better accept their 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 deal. Yeah. Yeah, no, I think it's a very valuable re lesson for people working in compliance because it shows even if you have the best tools, the best processes, if you have people that are willing to disregard them because the amount of the transaction is just too big to pass on, 
then it's still easy to uh, launder heavy uh, amounts of money.